Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a sunny day in a rather deserted city of Westminster, it must be said, as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm joined on today's programme by Stuart Welton. Stuart is the Managing Director of Welton Media, a digital media production company based in Liverpool, Merseyside. Stuart, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Thank you very much, Scott. Much appreciated. It's much appreciated, likewise, for you taking the time to uh, come on and speak with me. Now, the purpose of this podcast series is to gather together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership as a whole. And I think it's fair to say, Stuart, that it's really being put to the test at the moment, isn't it, with the whole COVID-19 pandemic and business leaders having to really feel their way through the crisis. Tell me, for somebody in your line of work, um, how has it been attempting to uh, navigate the last few weeks? Because I can imagine it's been disruptive on the one hand, but also quite easy to adapt given the nature of what you do oh scott it's it, it's just been absolutely crazy for everyone hasn't it nobody knows what's going on everyone's scared everyone's worried uh, people's livelihoods are at stake people's lives are at stake it's just a really difficult time so basically as a managing director of a business i first of all once we got the lockdown notice my phone's um uh, going mad for my staff saying, what's going on? I don't feel safe about coming in, all these things. How are we going to move forward? We've got work booked in. Basically, everyone's been really worried about it. And um, first and foremost is, obviously, uh, my commitment to my staff is is tenfold, isn't it? It's it's, it's my duty. Mm. Obviously, uh, you you hear people saying, no, you've got to come and work. We've got things to do. But you know what I mean? I'm a big believer that people... If you look after your staff, they will literally walk over hot coals for you when need be. So it wasn't an issue for me at all. It was, don't worry, guys, you stay at home. I'll keep you completely informed. Let me get into the office tomorrow. Let me speak to clients tonight and rework schedules and just let everyone know that, uh, you know, obviously we're adapting to the COVID-19 outbreak uh, and people be working from home and uh, we're still prepared and equipped to run our business effectively in this way for a lot of our clients. So it was a case of just been saying, don't be worried about contacting us. We know that you're worried as well because we market for you. And the last thing you can do is leave people with half-finished jobs. So my job as the managing director was to make sure that, A, my staff were all looked after and all safe and, and things like that. and And also to... Uh, to make sure that our clients weren't left high and dry. They needed their products, their jobs finishing, Mm -hmm. so they could still market in a certain way through the COVID-19 outbreak. So it was a case of juggling a few hats, to be honest. I had to look after the business on one side and and wait to see what the government was going to do about that in the early days, look after the staff, and also look look after our clients as well. It's a very admirable approach, but also a very difficult one to take, having to juggle all of that, it sounds, uh, Stuart. But I think for those people like yourself who've really been proactive in making sure that their staff are really, really well informed, when under a lot of pressure to provide answers quickly, even when there's a lot of uncertainty and those answers may not be clear, it's those people like yourself who will be seeing um, some real benefits in the sense that their staff, as you say, will walk over hot coals for you. They'll be getting their heads down, they'll be mucking in, whether they're on site or working from home, and just really ploughing on for the good of the business. And that's so, so important, isn't it? That attitude as a leader of really showing that you care about those around you makes it so much easier to take people with you. Well, it's it's got to be because obviously I I try and almost sell the dream. I mean, I've been doing this, uh, this has been my business for 12 years. My approach is that even though I'm the MD of the company, we're all in it together. I mean, you'll see me Hoover in the office, you'll see me taking out the bins. So they know there's not really that much of a hierarchy. Uh, We're a big, it's a big team effort. But even in that sense, when things do go wrong, they're going to look for me for leadership and direction. Mm. So I have to look after them. They're young people. They've got families. They've got wives uh, or, or husbands, and uh, and they've got mortgages. So they basically say to me, Stu, what are we going to do? Am I going to lose my job? And my first answer was, no, you are not. We will get through this. We have a successful business. We can take a bit of a hit. I'll work with you, work with the government, keep you informed. So some people have been furloughed and we've made sure that they're financially safe. Others, because they can do their job from home, I'm still speaking to them uh, near enough every day uh, to, to, to work in a different way, basically, so that clients can still get their jobs that they need doing. We can still 
supplier service to certain people and just try and keep everyone's morale up and keep everyone's head above water. There was a hugely important quality of being a leader that you mentioned uh, there, Stuart, for sure. And that was that humility, as you say, showing that you're willing to essentially be on a level with uh, your employees and not just keep them informed, but also lead from the front. Absolutely right. Especially in times of of crisis. And when we're seeing um, people really going above and beyond during this time as well to keep business running, do you think that there are some benefits to be drawn from this experience of employees and leaders going out of their comfort zones? Well, yes, definitely. It's, uh, you know, it's, um, well, as, as I said before, um, uh, how you look after your staff. I, I, I run uh, a business where I completely trust every one of my staff. They know my ethos as, as a business owner. That's why I called the company Welter Media. I use my surname because I have a certainly a unique way of working where it's about honesty, it's about trust, it's about caring, no matter what the job. And because they know that, they basically know what I expect of them as well, so that when times are tough, I do expect them to to come out fighting and basically say to me, what can I do to help? How can I support you? Because at the end of the day, if, if my business folds, then they're out of a job as well. So mm. they need to help me. As, as They need me as much as I need them so we can work together as a team. It's very much that team ethos that I really do promote here. And obviously with the adversities of COVID-19, it is well. It has been, hasn't it? Backs against the wall. So it's 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 in times like this, and you see in communities all over the country, people come together and try and work together to make sure people are safe and pe- people are going to be okay. Exactly right, because without that team of people around you, without surrounding yourself with people who are positive and are going to really get the best out of you as a leader, but also you can nurture the best out of them, it's like you're not really leading anything as such, are you? So picking those people and also picking your mentors uh, to a degree is also uh, quite important. And if we think about that for um, a moment, Stuart, as well, and the qualities that are so important in positive team members, what sort of aspects do you look for when it comes to the recruitment side of things? Um, well, it's, uh, because, because obviously, in a nutshell, uh, we're a creative agency. We do uh, media marketing, digital marketing, all that type of thing. So a lot of our clients, it's not their forte. So they come to us literally with these big puppy dog eyes with the hands open. Stu, what can you do for us? What do we need to do? So I need people around me when, when I'm recruiting and, and things like that who who are very polite, very welcoming. People are scared when they're working with us because they've never done it before. So people who are friendly, people who will hold our clients' hands and, and be there no matter what to assist them, give them advice. You know, I'm a big believer that every time somebody picks up the, uh, you pick up the phone to somebody, you don't charge for that. Where's the free advice service gone? You know, if you look after your clients, they'll only spend with you late, later down the line a little bit more anyway. So I require my staff as I said before about walking over hot coals, to do whatever the client requests and to help them and suggest to them and be more creative um, yeah, and be, be a friend to our clients so that they know they're going to pick up the phone, they know every member of the staff's names, they know they can tell when they speak to my staff that, that our staff are smiling when they're on the phone to them. So it's always, it's always a joyous, welcoming time getting in touch with Welter Media and and doing a job with Welter Media, uh, knowing that you're going to get the friendly approach, the creative approach, and looked after. And that is basically the ethos of myself and the business. So therefore, that is what I expect of every one of my employees. And I think um, that requires an awful amount of adaptability, doesn't it? Just as people management does in being a leader as well, because no one approach necessarily works for the same person across the board. So managing that is also hugely important and being able to adapt your approach to know when to be a little bit more soft with certain people, when to be a little bit more upfront firm with others. That's also uh, quite important, isn't it? Oh, uh, Definitely, Scott. I mean, they see it for me. I expect them to learn from me. Uh, in the office. I mean, I've been in this game over 20 years, so I'd like to think I know what I'm doing. Uh, and, um, for example, one of my editors, uh, I'd worked with him in a previous job. I was his mentor there. Then he went off to uh, work with another company for a few years, and I started my business. And then five years ago, I, I was able to uh, bring him on board again. And I found that he, 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 he I knew he was a, a lovely guy, but he, he picked up a few bad habits from his old employee, uh, and, and, and it took him a while to get back into 
the way that I work, where it's, you know, I want him to be creative. I want him to think out of the box. I want them to put their own style onto things. Uh, because, you know, it's not just me who's right. What my flair is different to somebody else's flair. So I want them to put their unique stand and their creative experiences onto every piece of work they do. And then we'll sit together as a team and say, what you think, Stu? What you think, blah, blah, blah. And we'll go through it all together and uh, and come up with the, the best best thing for that client, really. So really to almost say that the structure is that there's no structure, if you if you know what I mean, Scott. That I mm. want them to approach every job completely differently with a blank piece of paper or blank TV screen and really get to know that client and see what they want, what are their needs, and, and, yeah, and put their own style to it and their own creativity. Mm, I think it's important to sometimes take a little bit of a backseat in that sense and let people take their own form of leadership yes, and be independent. Not it's, my way or the highway. Mm, it's hugely important. And having talked about um, sort of that own sort of leadership style that you've taken on know yourself, Stuart, um, what would you say have been some of the influences throughout your life and your career that have sort of rubbed off on that style? Um, were having bad bosses is, is one to be mm. honest in, in my career I've had a few bosses where I don't I think they've lacked slight leadership I think they've approached their staff in a very almost father and children way type of thing where you know where it, you're going to get told off or you do it their way and I just don't think people benefit from that I really don't not in this uh uh, day, you know, if you're five minutes late from work, you don't need to get chastised for that, do you? There might have been something on the motorway, you, you, you don't know, and I don't expect them then just to stay five minutes after when they're meant to finish work. Stuff happens in life. As I said, if you look after your staff, they will look after you as well. So the, the advice that I've picked up or can give to people is, remember what it was like to be an employee and uh, and, and the gripes you had with your bosses so in, in a corny phrase, I'm just trying to be the best boss ever type of thing because I've worked with people who I think should have done things in different ways. I've taken on that experience and thought, mm, how, how would I approach that differently? How can I work with that person? Do they need telling off? I don't think they do. I think we just need to sit down and talk things through and just be a bit more caring. I just think it's a different world than the, than the 90s when things were a, mm. bit, a bit harsh in the business place, I think. You know, if, if, if I'm employing the right people, Scott, I shouldn't have to do these things, should I? I should just be able to almost not be in the office and know that they're just going to do their job. I think that's absolutely right. And I think that comes back again to uh, to people management as well. But also one of the key things that you mentioned there was, as well as people who are mentors and people of influence, one of the biggest teachers in obviously developing people's leadership styles is just experience, isn't it? Experience of working with others, understanding what quite works and um, what sort of doesn't, doesn't and work, yeah. using that to uh, develop themselves as well. Yes, definitely. As, as I said at the beginning of the interview with regards to you'll see me doing the hoovering and things, I think it's important that my staff see that as well. To know that I'm not sat here going, um, you, go and make me a cup of tea. Or you, look, it's messy, go and take the bins out. I'll walk into the edit suite and go, John, your bin's looking full, mate. Pass it over here, I'm going to take them all out. Or go in and say, would you like a cup of, you know, just all mucking together so that they know I'm a, approachable, B, I'm not going to bite their head off, and C, I'm in it for the long haul. I'm going to work together in a, in, in a team so that we, we all prosper. And if you, based upon all of that experience, Stuart, could give um, some advice to one of those people who was aspiring to be essentially their own boss and start a journey within business for themselves, what advice would you have to give them? Uh, take it slowly. Uh, you, you're not in a rush. If, if you want to, um, if you want to run your own business, you've obviously you, you've been in a place where you've obviously sat there and thought, you know what? You've either thought I can do this better myself, or where do I want to be in ten years? They're, they're two of the things that I certainly thought. So that when you when you're there and you're starting your business, yes, you need to carry on because you'll probably be a sole trader for a little bit of the time so you need to be the operator you need to do that but you also need to learn the business side of the side of things so just do it in your own time learn your business learn how to do the finances learn all the elements that you require you to be a boss uh, and a leader because as you bring people on board they're the old you 
So they're going to come to you and ask you these questions about the business and things. And you've got to be in a position to answer them and, and to mentor them. And you're not, you're not in it for the short-term gain. It's obviously something you want to do for the rest of your life if you're starting a business. So it all doesn't have to be all singing and dancing within six months. You know, take your time. Let it grow organically. Go and meet people. Tell people what you can do. Be happy. Be pleasant. Do the odd little bit of work for free. It does, it does help when, when you're starting out. Show people what you can do. I mean, I've got clients now 12 years ago, uh, from 12 years ago, and I can literally map from 12 years ago when I did uh, a job for them for free when I was starting up. And then from that job, they put me in touch with another client two years later. I did a few jobs for that client. One of the staff moved to another piece, another client. I retained the old one, got the new one as well. And literally from that one job that I did 12 years ago for free, I've now got nine clients from. And, and, and some of them are, you know, big hitters that are, we're earning good money from. So it does help to do a little bit of free work, show people what you're about, Go to networking things. I know it's scary, but you have to get out of your comfort zone. Exactly. You have to get used to talking about yourself and about your business. I remember standing up for the first time and my hands were shaking, my heart was pumping because there was always somebody else to do that role for me, but all of a sudden it was me. And it does take time. I wasn't comfortable talking about the business for a good two years. So take your time. It's not You're not in a rush. Take your time, learn the business, read a couple of books, there's a great book out there called The E-Myth Revisited. I'm sure you've heard of it, Scott. It's absolutely wonderful. It was a great bedtime read because it shows you how to be a boss of your business and not work in your business. Businesses can fold because you're too busy looking at the... You think you're the only one that can do your mm. business in that way because you care so much about it. You've got to be able to let go slightly and give some of the mundane tasks to other people to free up your time, to grow the business, learn more about the sectors that you work in. I think that's incredibly uh, sound advice. I mean, it's all about, isn't it, really not thinking too much about the short term and thinking about the yeah. long term and longevity. And Definitely the long term. And if we do think about that long term, uh, Stuart, before we do uh, wrap things up on the uh, the programme today, um, do give me an idea of what you envision the next 12 months will hold for yourself and for Welton Media in navigating the COVID pandemic, but also what your ambitions may be for beyond that time when we begin to emerge from the other side of this crisis. Oh, well, Scott, we, uh, just before COVID started, we'd had the uh, best six months that we'd ever had as a business. We were really, really doing well. So it was, uh, it was a shame that, uh, obviously, it came about when it came about. Obviously, it's a shame anyway. Nobody wants, wants this virus. But it came when we were doing extremely well. Uh, so obviously, you can imagine it's gone from a really busy hustle and bustle. We've got no time on our hands. We're so busy to to uh, basically the tap being turned off for 90% of our, our clients. So it's gone really quiet. Um, but I do expect things to pick up. It has to pick up because people are going to have to market. People are going to have to spend again. People are going to have to showcase their products. People are going to have to get the economy back going again. When that happens, we don't know as of yet. It's all, all very vague and it's just a case of watching this space. So it, it is the pause button has been pressed, hasn't it, for the next few months. People are starting to come back to work now. So I'm dipping my toe in the water, speaking to people, saying, look, how can we assist you? What do you need doing? Is there any way we can rehash old graphics or old footage just to help you uh, get, get, some, get some branding out there over the next month, in the, uh, which is quite cost-effective? And then so from those next couple of months, it is going to be, hopefully, people start coming back, our clients come back to us and, and we can kick on again and hopefully carry on where we've left off. Very aware that we're going to be in a, in a recession. So it, it's a case of watching this space a little bit and just tentative, tentatively move forward, but at the pace that our clients require us to and and just make sure that I can look after my staff because the last thing I'm going to do is make anyone redundant, Scott. Mm. That is the last thing on my mind. It comes back to the team uh, uh, ethics that I'm trying to promote. I'm not going to be letting anyone go. Um, I'm very confident that ourselves as well to media as a business will get through this. I'm staying extremely confident about it. And yeah, just, just power forward and work as a team. 
And I think it's hugely important to uh, maintain uh, that ethos uh, going forward. Certainly seems like that's at the forefront of the strategy for sure. And um, let's hope as well um, that we do begin to see that upward trajectory uh, coming back sooner rather than later once we do emerge from this uh, situation. I have to say, Stuart, um, even though we are just about out of time on the uh, the programme today, it's been a real pleasure and a real insightful experience having you um, on the air with us. So thanks ever so much Thank for that. Thank you, Scott. But, I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it. Um, but what I also think would be um, unbelievable for the uh, the listeners is actually maybe when we start to see things changing in the next few months, we could perhaps have you back on to look at this retrospectively and catch up on how the business is going, by which time hopefully that upward trajectory will very much be back on the uh, the agenda. Um, but as I say, it's definitely, been... Definitely, Scott. Yeah, definitely. But as I say, it's been fantastic having you on the air with us today, Stuart, and do take care and do stay safe with everything still going on for the minute. Yeah, you stay safe as well, Scott, and I'll, uh, I'll catch up with you shortly. Thanks for the call. Certainly so. That was Stuart Welton, the Managing Director of Welton Media in Liverpool. Uh, coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Um, Lord David Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and also the Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett is one of the most prominent politicians of his generation, having held a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and having served as the MP for the Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. Lord Blunkett was first elevated to the House of Lords, anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough back in August of 2015. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with Lord Blunkett and that's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. 
Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically, locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's a severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think Out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the the UK and. Um, and the U.S., and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of 
getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of... Um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. My experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue all of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings. Uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding my only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. 
Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business. What will happen if um, there's a cyber attack? What happens if there's an energy shutdown? Sh um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future 
on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, 
led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and um, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did 
in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.